line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking right now on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin. Welcome to Business Disrupted for January 11th, 2021. Or if, like me, you are still in pandemic time and it's March the 304th, 2020. Joining us today from Washington, D.C., former U.S. Senator Al Franken, host of the Al Franken Podcast, and from Los Angeles, California, Gordon Firemark, an attorney specializing in entertainment law who's known as the Podcast Lawyer. Since 2009, he's hosted the Entertainment Law Update Podcast, and he recently created Legit Podcast Pro, a program to help hobby podcasters professional. This being our first episode, I thought I'd talk a bit about what we hope to do with this hour of your time. There are plenty of shows and podcasts that'll tell you how to improve profit margins, how to tweak ratios, how to be a human resources genius, how to make money in real estate. This is not one of those shows because that's not my expertise. I'm a turnaround and restructuring advisor. Worrying about tweaking ratios and improving already positive profit margins is elective surgery. I'm a field. Not that there's anything wrong with elective surgery, with taking a healthy company and making it work a little better, but that's not where my DNA comes from. My background is more than 20 years of walking into companies that are on fire, more than once they had literally been on fire, finding sense in the chaos, creating order, and constructing a path to survival. We save jobs, we create value. I testify as an expert in commercial litigation, often but not always in the context of bankruptcy and the failure of a company. Once a company is well, I'm usually gone. So I'm the last person who should talk to you about nudging your retained earnings in the right direction or what color your marketing materials should be. That's not to say that there aren't interesting discussions to be had about corporate failure, about crisis and turnarounds. There are, and we're going to talk about those stories. But those are individual episodes, not a concept for a show. Also, I'm red-green colorblind, so take my advice on the color of your marketing materials at your own risk. On the other hand, if you want to talk about why EBITDA is a big honk and lie, I'm your guy. See, I love a good word because I believe there are lessons to be learned in others' experiences that the road followed by someone else can teach us something we didn't expect, may not have appreciated. That's why I'm here. We can delight in other stories and still learn something interesting. Some of those will be inspiring. Some will be train wrecks. Some will make you cringe because that's how reality works. That's what we're gonna do. Bring you interesting stories that relate to business issues in a context that is more akin to storytelling and interviews than it is a business textbook. This is a journey. And as the author James Baldwin wrote, a journey is only a journey when you don't know where you're going to end. Who am I to decide what's relevant for you? Well, if this was a lofty monologue written by Aaron Sorkin, I'd probably tell you that I'm the media elite. But I'm not elite. I'm someone who appreciates a good war story. I like driveway moments, and I want to find them for you. Those stories and interviews where you don't want to leave the car. Some of you may remember those from before we had podcasts. I've spent the last 15 years or so doing educational panels, writing articles, writing part of a book or two. And what I know is that there are opportunities to be entertained and informed by the unexpected. There are plenty of sources for business shows out there, and you can choose from all of them. I'm glad you've chosen this one, and I hope you stick around and come back. This show is new. It's going to evolve, and I hope you'll give us the favor of your ideas and your feedback. My promise to you is that I will take your time and your attention seriously, that I will always tell you when something is my opinion versus fact, that I will look for subjects and guests that will introduce you, our audience, 
to new ideas, to things you may not have considered before, and that we'll keep looking for new and interesting stories to bring to you. And we will do all of this honestly and authentically. Because in a time when the mass media audience is being pulled in every direction by contrived messages serving ulterior motives, I think you deserve honesty and authenticity. Welcome to Business Disrupted. I'm your host, Ted Gavin. Today on the show, podcasts. Why do we care? Well, we care because it's big business with a growing market, and it's eating radio's lunch. According to a study from Grandview Research, podcasting was a $9.28 billion market in 2019 and is expected to maintain an annual growth rate of 27.5% through 2027. If you were able to invest in an index fund of the podcast market, it would be one of the most, if not the most, profitable legal investments a person could make over the next seven years. And this makes sense. In the 10 years ending 2020, the percent of Americans who have listened to a podcast more than doubled from 22% to 55%. Monthly listeners are up 32% from 2019. Weekly listeners are up 12%. According to data from Podcast Insights, as of January 2020, there are more than 1.75 million podcasts with 43 million downloadable episodes. That's up from 550,000 in June 2018. In two years, the platform has tripled in size. According to a report from Neiman Lab, in 2020, for the first time, NPR was on track to realize more revenue from podcasts than from their radio shows. And it's relatively easy to make a big splash on numbers. A podcast with 3,135 downloads per episode in the first seven days of availability is in the top 1% of podcasts. The threshold for the top 50% is 27 downloads in seven days. Podcast network Gimlet Media is an exemplar of this industry. The company was created in 2014. They raised a million and a half dollars in angel capital at a valuation of $10 million. Just more than a year later in December of 2015, the company raised $6 million in a Series A round at a $30 million valuation. In August 2017, they raised another $15 million Series B round. And in early 2019, Spotify bought Gimlet for a reported $230 million. Radio, on the other hand, is a $17 billion market and is shrinking by about 4% per year. If radio and best growth trends hold, podcasts will surpass radio's market size in 2022. As employment in radio newsrooms has trended downward by almost a third in the last 10 years, podcasts are growing. And colleges are still graduating people with journalism degrees who want to go to audio media, bless their hearts. Where are all these radio journalists going? We can make an informed guess. The largest single podcasting content segment is the news and politics segment. Yet podcasts aren't without market quirks that create waves. A VoxNest data study indicates that podcast listens were down 40% after last year's pandemic started attributed largely to the decline in daily work commutes. It's no coincidence that average commute time is 20 to 40 minutes, average time at the gym is 20 to 40 minutes, and average podcast length is 20 to 40 minutes. Now that type of decline negatively impacts brand advertising, which is about 40% of podcast ads. But on the other hand, the direct response ad market that produces the majority of podcast ad revenue was largely unaffected. And ads and podcasts are unusual when compared to other media like radio and television. Podcast listeners pay attention to ads a lot, like 81% of them. That blows almost every other form of media away. Podcast advertising is sticky and it results in higher conversion rates. 60% of podcast listeners have bought something from a podcast ad. Numbers greater than that say they ignore radio commercials, billboards, digital and television commercials. 
So we have this medium that appears similar to radio, but operates on fundamentally different market influences. And here we are starting a radio show that will also be a podcast. So Gordon Firemark, how am I going to screw this up? Well, the good news is you're probably not going to screw this up unless you use other people's stuff without their permission. I'm talking about copyright infringement. Podcasting, unlike terrestrial radio, doesn't have the sort of ease of use of using music, for example, in a podcast episode. So using other people's stuff, copyright infringement, telling lies, defaming people, hurting their reputation by uttering falsehoods about them, invading privacy or using people's names as endorsements and things like that. And then there's some rules about advertising and uh, disclosures necessary if you're endorsing a product or something like that. But really, it's going to come down to that intellectual property side of things, not infringing other people's copyrights and also not inadvertently creating co-ownership with guests and co-hosts and producing partners and things like that. You got to be a little thoughtful and intentional about those things. You raise an interesting issue, which is co-ownership issues. Mm -hmm. Ownership of intellectual property can be a dodgy issue. We talked about Gimlet earlier. Last year, Gimlet became the subject of some discussion in the public sphere as the hosts of its podcast, The Nod, took public their ownership dispute with the network. They had an opportunity for a media deal, but first they had to get Spotify's permission because the terms of their contract with Gimlet stated that Gimlet owned the show. Uh, they had developed the show when they worked for Gimlet as employees. They pitched the show. They used Gimlet resources to, to prepare and produce the show. And Gimlet employees did the show. In contrast, other Gimlet employees had worked out ownership deals with respect to their shows, and that was pretty publicly known. So why isn't this issue, particularly in the context of a podcast network, why isn't this issue simpler? Where, where are the blurred lines when it comes to ownership? Well, it actually is pretty simple. It's just not intuitive <laughs> for creators. You know, people seem to think if I'm paying for it, I own it. That's one component of that. And that is somewhat true. But authorship in, this, in the sense of copyright ownership, uh, authorship is ownership. And so when, what you have with the situation with that Gimlet and the Nod folks is they were employees of the company. And therefore, the company was deemed the author of that material. And I think that took them by surprise, but I'm not quite sure why it, it did. I think that that part of it's fairly intuitive. Where it gets tricky and confusing is when two people sit down together to create something and they've never had a conversation or never thought about who's going to own this thing. Two individuals. It, it, the law says they're joint authors, even though one person paid for all the equipment and the bandwidth and the airtime and, and all that they are still co-authors because they sat down to be creative together collaboratively. And so in the absence of a clear understanding about that kind of thing, you end up with conflicts and trouble. And so we get to the need for... I wonder how many people go into this thinking they're going to make a profit, that this is a business as opposed to, I just want to do a podcast about brisket. I'd listen to that. I'm curious about this. I mean, I obviously, look, I, I've had this podcast now for a year and a half, two years. I don't know exactly <laughs> how long it's been. It's been a while. Anyway, so, but of course I'd been in show business, right? Yeah. And I'd been a senator and people know me. And so I knew everything Gordon says that people don't quite understand. I understood, but um, a lot of people, yes, this all isn't intuitive unless you've been in this kind of business before. 
you got to sort out who owns it <laughs> like in anything right <laughs> and and al you're right on the the money that until there's money to figure out nobody cares who owns it <laughs> right so people yeah, go in most the out of the 1.75 million is that what you said there are now i mean there are now 12 podcasts just on brisket and seven of them are really good <laughs> and, and, and and yours could have been 13 and only three make money now obviously people go into it hoping that they'll catch on and they do and people do but yeah if you're listening to this and you're wondering uh, about starting a podcast and one of the first things you should do is consult somebody in terms of ownership and normally these are very often one person deals but they might be two and then then you guys decide you know who's <laughs> you got to work it out that's all yeah and the most difficult thing to do is go back in time and draft the contract that you should have drafted years ago yes don't do that <laughs> right gordon <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i'm not a lawyer but i played one in so, a sketch once there you go <laughs> So Gordon um, raised an interesting dynamic, which is the difference between the hobbyist podcast and the, the money-making professional podcast. There are plenty of podcasts that would aspire to be professional and simply don't make any money. And I suppose the IRS would call them hobbies, but you've recently created a program that's designed to help podcasters train their internal organization and their internal thinking from that of the hobbyist podcaster to a professional podcaster. What do you think the hurdles are there? I think the mindset is an important hurdle because, as Al said, so many people come into it to focus on a topic that they feel passionate about. They and their 12 friends and, and maybe a few hundred other people around the world care about that topic. And that, that's very, very difficult to monetize and turn into a business. But if, if Unless they come it's in, sex. <laughs> well, that's way more than 12 friends that care about sex, I think. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The mindset of I'm coming into this as a business, you take a completely different approach to the very beginning, starting out, you, you're going to think about what's the market, you do that analysis, you, you figure out how long is it going to take me to get this many listeners so that I can be in that top 1% and command some advertising revenue or a different monetization strategy. One of the nice things about podcasting is there's lots of different ways to monetize and Advertising sponsorship is just one of them. And it's frankly, I think it's the hardest one to make work. Getting back to the ownership dispute issue, one of the most valuable aspects of a podcast once it's up and running and has an audience is the fact that it has an audience. The RSS feed, the, the mechanism by which the podcast makes its way from a studio out into the world. The reason why it, that's so valuable and why parties are willing to fight over who owns it is because if you're going to start a new podcast, can drop it into an existing podcast's RSS feed mm -hmm. and instantly reach all of those listeners. So you eliminate having to rebuild. Al, you entered podcasting with a, a pretty good email list, if I do recall correctly. So you had the same benefit as though you were slipping into the shoes of an already existing successful podcast simply because of your name recognition and your, and your following. Yeah, and I also teamed up with some guys who own the studio and do a lot of podcasts, right? And so they have their business and I'm under their umbrella. So I basically haven't paid that much attention to it. <laughs> My feelings make the podcast. What I do is basically it's political, but it, it depends what's going on 
during uh, a period. When I was first doing it, it was before the elections, well before the elections. And so, for example, when during the Kavanaugh hearings, I did one on the Federalist Society. What's the Federalist Society? And the Federalist Society, of course, had approval over any judge that Trump would nominate, which was a deal he made. And the Federalist Society, you know exactly what someone recommended by the Federalist Society. So Amy Comey Barrett didn't, when a senator would ask or a Republican senator would say, did you talk to the president about Roe v. Wade? And her, she would say, no, I didn't. Instead of saying, I didn't have to. <laughs> I'm with the Federalist Society. They recommend it. He knows where I am. I don't have to. That's a disingenuous right. question and you know it, but she wouldn't say that. But I didn't know why any Democrat on the committee, which I used to be on, didn't say that. Didn't say, oh, come on. You know that the president knows where you stand on it and we know where you stand on it. You want to make abortion illegal in many states or, or incredibly hard to almost impossible to get. That's why I focus on what's the Federalist Society as opposed to what's my take on the Kavanaugh hearings and et cetera. But for example, now I'm going to have Preet Bharara and Joyce Vance. After I get off with you, I'm going to be interviewing them. And of course, we're just going to be talking about what's happened over the last week, what's going to be done in terms of impeachment. If the House impeaches, does the Senate take it up? What does Biden do? Biden doesn't want his first day as president there being an impeachment trial, I don't think. Can they put it off for 30 days? What is the purpose of the impeachment if he's out of office? Is it just so that he can't run for office again? That's, I think, what they're, what they're trying to do. The point is, that's what I do. That, that's what my thing is. And as you were saying, that's a popular genre even more popular than brisket. <laughs> so putting aside the bigger story behind the little story that you focus on, Gordon, I want to talk to you about something that has recently become an issue in podcasting, really in media generally, and that is cancel culture. I don't know that I'll entirely agree with the use of the phrase for what we're going to be talking about, but uh, there have been recently a few examples of guests on podcasts demanding to be removed from the history of that podcast when a podcaster later does something with which they do not agree. Yeah, I, I, I would just characterize it as, as sort of a revisionist approach to appearing on podcasts. You know, one of the crusades that I'm on is that podcasters should get a written or signed release from every guest who comes on the show so that they are not at the whim of some former guest who gets disgruntled and insists that they take down that episode and so on because they take issue with the editorial direction that the show has maybe gone in or that they've had a guest with whom they don't agree. And so now you've got a hole in, the, in that RSS feed sequence of things. And I've represented a handful of clients that have you know, been in that situation without the release. And it's very hard to justify keeping the episode's up on the air. And this happens in mainstream media to a certain where a rights problem happens or something. But if you get the paperwork right, you, you still can choose to take something down if it's consistent with your worldview about things, but you don't have to. And so we have this issue of folks 
taking issue with a show because of a guest they've had on or because of a topic that they've covered. And when you're in the uh, enviable position of, of someone like Mr. Franken, who, you know, got a big name and, and a, a, a long history in media and a point of view that anybody who's <laughs> coming to you knows what they're, what they're getting, right? That's less of a concern, but for a smaller podcaster who's maybe still trying to build a platform and build an audience and, and attract the folks that know, like, and trust, it can be devastating to have your guests back out. The other cancel culture is the applying pressure to the companies with which you do business. And we've seen that this week, boy, haven't we? Asking your hosting company to stop carrying your show because you have a message that's unpopular. I think that's what we associate as being cancel culture. It's, yeah. it's the forced deplatforming of somebody or of a program for yeah. a specific reason that's specific to the party calling for that. Mm -hmm. it, somebody not liking something that someone does and demanding to be removed from the history of that show doesn't strike me as much as cancel culture as as sort of the inverse. Well, yeah, it's it's canceling themselves. And while they're probably approaching it from the perspective of I don't agree with what this person has done. So I no longer want to be associated with it. In retrospect, mm -hmm. I guess the fact is you, you were there. And, and now you're fighting over whether people in the future get to remember that you were there. Mm hmm. I think, you know, it's, it, it's a good thing to check whose show you're on. <laughs> I think that's the lesson here. It's like, I get requests like, I know you, Ted, and I guess I can't tell you to take this one down because you made me, now I know why you made me sign this damn thing. That's because of Gordon. <laughs> I don't do that, but, you know, this is the first one I've done. Hmm. But usually I'm on with people who I know who they are and I know they're not going to be, I don't like, uh, you know, Tucker Carlson as a podcast, I'm not going to go on it, <laughs> you know, so I'm not worried that he's going to say something yeah. horrific in a few months. And so pretty much I pick and choose what I go on. And I guess it, you could get blindsided, I suppose, but I've been pretty careful about what I choose to go on. Gordon, you talked earlier about a couple of things that, that we skipped over a bit. Things like false light invasion of privacy, not saying things that people will be unhappy with. Where are the lines between simply reporting what has happened or reporting what someone else has reported versus getting into the barrel on that issue? Well, you know, this is defamation, libel and slander, and the rights of privacy are a little bit of a moving target. And some of it depends on who your victim is. And some of it depends on who you are. Are you big media or small media? Are you going to get treated differently in this arena? But on the defamation side, if it's false and it's harmful to somebody's reputation, they could sue if they can justify the legal expense of it and that you're a viable defendant from an economic standpoint. But in the privacy space, it's about hurt feelings and injured dignity, essentially. And so you do see people getting very bent out of shape because someone created a misimpression about them. More importantly, it's you know when something that is genuinely private information is outed about a person. I'm thinking about medical history, educational history, sexual orientation or, or preferences, and those kinds of things. People expect that it's their choice when those things become known to others. And as a host, a media creator, it's easy to get excited about, hey, we're going to have a scoop. We're going to get this news out there. But, you know, journalism has rules. And unfortunately, many, many folks who come into podcasting 
haven't learned those rules when they do it. It's a very low barrier to entry in this. And uh, that's, it's wonderful promise, but it's also the risk. Well, and with that, we're going to take a quick break for some messages from our sponsors. We've been talking with the podcast lawyer, Gordon Firemark. Gordon, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. I hope you stick around and I hope you'll come back. When we come back, we'll be talking with former U.S. Senator Al Franken about the creation of his latest endeavor, the Al Franken Podcast. And if while we're gone, a confident voice tells you to buy something, do what they say for Pete's sake. Welcome back. We're talking the business of podcasts with Gordon Firemark, entertainment lawyer from Los Angeles, and with former U.S. Senator Al Franken. Senator, thanks for joining us. In the event that we have listeners who don't know your resume, you started as a comedy writer on Saturday Night Live from the show's debut in 1975 to 1980, and again from 85 to 95. You've written seven books, many of which were number one New York Times bestsellers. You've written in and appeared in a number of films and a television sitcom. You've been nominated for a Grammy Award seven times and won twice. For three years, you hosted a ratings-leading nationally syndicated talk radio show, and then you were elected twice to the United States Senate from Minnesota. So, so, so an underachiever is, is, is what, what we're saying. What led you to decide to use a podcast to re-engage in the public dialogue? Well, I just, I wanted to re-engage in the public dialogue. So I felt this was, you know, I had a radio show, which was a radio show at Air America, and did three hours a day. It was a radio show and you cut at the half hour for like a six minutes of commercials and uh, podcast is very different. It's a very different kind of conversation. It's more intimate. You can get into more depth usually. So I like the medium a lot and I'm able to explore things and issues in a little bit more depth whether it's climate, or we got one coming up on the effect of the pandemic on, on D.C. public school kids, which is pretty devastating. I want to be part of the conversation, and I thought that was a good way to do it. And it it's, it's doing quite well. You've got about 100,000 downloads a month? Yeah. Or, excuse me, preface. Yeah. So if the top 1% bounds at about 3,150 episodes, yours is doing pretty well. There's, according um, to you, 1.75 million. So 1% is what? <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's yeah. still a big number. We talked earlier about how you've been focusing on the bigger story behind the story. Um, you used a podcast with an interview with former Center for Medicare Services head Andy Slavitt. And he discussed his coming to the Obama administration from the business world to take over CMS and save healthcare.gov. The problems with healthcare.gov is, is one that everyone's heard about, but no one never really knew the details behind it. And, and as you mentioned, in conjunction with Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation process, you didn't focus on that. You did a deep dive on the Federalist Society, which, although it's a pervasive influence on the federal judiciary, few people who aren't judiciary wonks know very much about. So what's your approach to deciding on the story to cover? Well, I'm, I'm not on every day, right? And so I'm just not doing news of the day unless, like this week, obviously, you, you can't ignore the news this week. That's what it's going to be about. But I, I try to do something. There's plenty of news of the day. 
You can get it if you want to tune in to CNN or MSNBC. You can hear it on Pod Save America. You can get news of the day and people just yabbering about news of the day. So no one needed more of that. <laughs> so I felt like I'd like to get a little bit more uh, in-depth about particular issues. During a campaign, which we had all year this year, you do tend to get in a, a little bit more of what happened this week. And what happened this week, this past week, of course, a week ago, we were all talking about Trump's call to the Secretary of State of Georgia and asking him or demanding that he find the votes. And then it was the election in Georgia. Both Democratic candidates won, and that means the, the huge story, which is Democrats will have the majority going forward for this Congress. And then you had, of course, Cruz and Hawley leading this effort in the Senate and all these House members to try to reverse the election. And then you had, of course, the storming of, of the Capitol, which is a horrific event and a horrific event in the history of our democracy. And uh, so, hence, uh, pre Barrara and, and Joyce Vance this week. There's going to be so, way, way, way too much to talk about. I, I imagine. Do you vary the length of your podcast depending on who there is to talk about, or do you try and keep it to the same length? I do vary it, and it depends. I, I, I vary it now. At first, I would do them all in a certain window because I would also be on Sirius as a radio show. But now okay. I have more flexibility, so I can do I did an interview with David Letterman uh, a few weeks ago that I haven't uh, aired yet or haven't, uh, I guess air isn't the right term, but I haven't put up yet. And that's longer because I've known David for a long, long time. And we had, he's pretty interesting, David Letterman, you see. And so we had a lot to talk about. And I'm sure this one with Preet and, and Joyce will be on the longer side. And then every once in a while, I have one that's, you know, we can cover it in, in a shorter time. Earlier at the top of the episode, I, I mentioned advertising. And one of the reasons podcast advertising is so effective is because it's often the hosts of the show that read the ads. Uh, your podcast is advertiser supported and you have an extensive comedy writing background. And, and, and unsurprisingly, that has intersected with the ads on your show that you read. In one recent ad campaign, you talk about an accessory designer's product, and in describing the designer's qualifications, you mentioned that he previously did designs for Martha Stewart, including the bar of soap in a sock. Surely that line wasn't what the advertiser planned. So what's your process for, for doing ad scripts? The advertisers actually like it if I put a, a few jokes in, because <laughs> more people will listen if they know that I'm going to do that. The soap in a sock was something Gordon Liddy told me about. Gordon Liddy did some time. <laughs> and I, you told about my sitcom, Late Line. Gordon was a guest on it. And he told me about the soap in a sock. So when you go to the shower, you have, you have a bar of soap in a sock that you can fight somebody off with if you have to. The, the art in that is blending it with a routine everyday accessory and Martha Stewart all in the same sentence. 
That's right. I did one the other day for a thing where you can tune in and get wonderful lectures about everything, right? And I say the one that changed my life is the one about how to, I learned how to do voiceovers on podcasts, how to do ads <laughs> on podcasts. <laughs> and that just changed my life. You know, you just try to make them funny. That's all. And then they yeah. like that because then the listener listens. You mentioned when we were talking, you did a VPN ad and, and used your personal preference as why you needed to use a VPN product. Yeah. A VPN, of course, blocks so that your ISP or other don't get your data. And so it's like, you don't want other people sharing your, your data. So I advertise the product then and basically say, you don't want people to know certain things like, and then I just, each time I just reveal that I have a thing for Jill St. John circa 1968 and that I don't want people <laughs> to know that. <laughs> Which is dumb. <laughs> it's a dumb joke. I'm going to play a clip from a very early episode of your show, and, and we'll talk a little bit about it after it's done. It's one of the commercials that you ran early on in the, in the podcast. If you are a discerning smoker like I am, you know that there's a big difference between a cigarette that just delivers the nicotine you crave and one that provides a rich, smooth, satisfying smoke. Gracing the cover of this month's Cigarette Aficionado is international movie star Javier Bardem, smoking a Dunhill Fine Cut Black. This special blend has been cut 46 times per inch to produce the quality smoking pleasure that Dunhill is famous for. With 7 milligrams of tar and 0.8 milligrams of nicotine, a Dunhill Fine Cut Black is the perfect midday break when you're looking for a cigarette that can deliver that much-needed kick. Dunhill, of course, was just featured in Cigarette Aficionado's Special Annual Edition, coming in a well-deserved fourth in this year's list of the world's top 100 cigarettes. Also this month, a photo feature of heavy smoker Ralph Nader. See Ralph wearing Versace, showing off his things, as he likes to call them, starting with his $80 million Hamptons mansion and his collection of classic, dangerous cars. But which of Ralph's things does he value the most? Why, it's his vintage cigarette lighters. Also this month, enjoy a special section featuring smoke foods, Yum. It's a great issue of a great magazine for a free three-month subscription. Go to cigaretteaficionado.com backslash Al. Okay, so there is a lot to unwrap there, but first we should point out that there is no such magazine as Cigarette Aficionado. Uh, how did that bit play on the show, Al? I think it played very well, but there were a number of people who thought that it was a real magazine and that they were a sponsor of the Al Franken podcast. So I got some blowback, not a lot, but enough that I had to, a couple weeks later, just explain to people that it was, it was satirical. And because and, the idea of tobacco as a sexy thing, which is what cigar aficionado is always amused me. And then less sexy than cigars, maybe are cigarettes. 
So I actually had a woman who wrote in saying, how dare you have a tobacco sponsor you? And then after I ran the explanation, he wrote back saying, I'm an idiot. <laughs> Which I thought was really nice of her. I can't believe, you know. I mean, the tip-offs are, are many and varied. Having a palatial estate in the Hamptons, the collection of dangerous cars, being a yep, smoker. I thought that that would be uh, a heavy smoker, Ralph Nader, also wearing Versace. That doesn't seem like Ralph, does it? Because they do that in these spreads in magazines like Cigar Aficionado. They'll show somebody, some celebrity, wearing a certain <laughs> line of clothing, which always makes me laugh. That's so ridiculous to me. But the art of that was the straight read that you did, Hal. It was so straight and just right down the middle that you could believe that here was Al reading some ad that someone put in front of him that he really didn't want to. And, I guess uh, so. I guess so. Made it a little so. bit believable. I guess so. <laughs> evidently, evidently that happened. There were a few few people. So I needed, uh, to me, it was hilarious that people didn't get it. And then I got to explain it again, which made me very happy. Every comic's dream, right? Yes, to explain a joke. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks later. To explain a joke yeah. two weeks later. <laughs> That's the dream. You know, if you're if, if you have to explain it then and there, at least you can make it part of the bit. But but having to revisit it is uh, well, is we got to play it again. We got to play it again. So yeah. you know, it was just. I also did one for accountants without borders, and yes. they were <laughs> they were accountants who would go in after a disaster somewhere and carefully do the books. But it turns out they were in league with attorneys without borders, and they basically set up tax havens, was clearly the subtext. <laughs> so they, they I, I, I made it say. out like they were humanitarians, but they were actually but, just a scam. But you've put an excruciating amount of research into the bit talking about the details behind the cigarette for somebody who who doesn't and and has never smoked the idea of lovingly describing a cigarette is also very funny to me i i didn't know that the tobacco being cut more was something that was done that was a measure of how luxurious a cigarette was i didn't know any of that that stuff but it was fun to learn I like to learn. You have used your podcast and that platform to bring attention to worthy causes. You you raised money for mm -hmm. black and brown businesses in Minneapolis after the riots last summer. You raised money for No Kid Hungry to combat food insecurity. The the Boganege Shig School on the Leech Lake Reservation got seventeen hundred books for its library. You raised quite a lot of money. It actually got five thousand books. The story of that school was it was a disgraceful physical plant that I kept trying to get replaced and finally did. I had Secretary Jewell, the Interior Secretary. Interior is, had a Bureau of Indian Affairs under it and Bureau of Indian Education. Finally, I just harangued her so much. She went there and she saw it and went, oh boy, 
And one of the terrible things about it was the library was the size of a large closet, I'd say. And so they built a new school and the new school had the capacity for 20,000 books. And it became a library for the whole reservation. And so I just made it my business to try to fill the library. I had the librarian say, okay, give me a list of the books you want. And we had a list of 5,000 books and we did it like a wedding registry. So instead of a non-stick cupcake pan, it was Gulliver's Travels or something. And so people donated 5,000 books and $82,000. And because of the $82,000, not only were they able to get more books, but every kid had a tablet during COVID. So I oh, wow. feel good about that. And, uh, you know, we're, we raise money for the uh, ground game in Georgia for the Unite Here ground game. That's a union that is very good on, on the ground. And so my listeners came through on that one too. Unite Here is the conglomeration of the hospitality workers unions. That's right. That's right. What is your decision process when to engage? Is it just that something something hits you? Is something you want your listeners to engage in? Is there another measure that you use? When do you decide to go to your listeners with these issues? It, it really varies. I mean, some things are just obvious. Right now, we have some really glaring stuff that happened this last week that needs to be addressed. But sometimes I just take... Right after George Floyd, obviously the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, et cetera, was a big topic. And I read this article, I think it was in the Atlantic, by a philosopher who grew up in the South and lives in Germany. And she wrote a book, she wrote an article in the the Atlantic, but she wrote a book about the difference between the way the Germans have reacted to what they've done with the history of the Third Reich and World War II and the Holocaust versus what the South has done. She's Jewish too. She's Jewish, grew up in the South. And it was a really fascinating take on what the Germans have done versus what we've done in the United States. And so I did that. So every once in a while, we do something like that. The reason we did the DC public schools, you know, my daughter, Thomason, she works for the DC public school system and she worked very hard to get schools open for kids whose parents had to work basically during COVID that if they weren't able to go work, they would be starving. And the, the effect on kids in DC has been devastating. And yes, we had the people from No Kid Hungry, uh, founders of that on. We've seen a tripling of food insecurity during COVID. I'm very angry about the way the Trump administration and the Republicans in, in Congress have handled this. We've handled it in, in so many different ways, much, much worse than they've done it in Europe and other places, including that aspect of it. All of this is, it's political, but it's human. It's human. And uh, I was very moved. I had the chancellor uh, of the DC public school system. I had my daughter, but I also had a woman from Baloo High School who is head of a program 
this is a very, very, very poor population, 97% Black, 3% Hispanic. And the challenges there are amazing. And this woman, absolutely amazing woman, very moving for me. So every once in a while, we we do something that you're not going to necessarily hear any anywhere else, I guess. Sure. Well, Senator, I know you have to run. You have former U.S. Attorney Preparar in a few minutes for your own show. Honored to be on your maiden voyage. Well, thank you. Our guests have been Gordon Firemark and former U.S. Senator Al Franken. Gordon Firemark is on the web at firemark.com and on social media as G Firemark. His podcast is the Entertainment Law Update, available where podcasts are downloaded. Senator Franken is on the web at alfranken.com and on social media at Al Franken. And the Al Franken podcast is available through your favorite podcast provider. Join us next time as we explore how a hedge fund manager completes a multi-year journey for justice and just as he realizes vindication, ends up under federal indictment, facing a lengthy jail sentence and the closing of his fund, all because of Neiman Marcus. Yes, the department store. Next time, showdown at Marble Ridge. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our sound engineer is Aaron Keller. Theme song and original music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Art, soul, and branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social media by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode guides, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at disrupted.business. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America and the World Talk Radio Network. <laughs>